0: Beloved congregation of the Lord, please turn again to Luke chapter 24 and read with me verse 39. Verse 39 Behold my hands and my feet, that it, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. O oh, beloved congregation, every portion of the word of God is inspired. Every portion of the word of God is profitable for the church. But these portions of scripture that record the history after the Lord's resurrection Are surely those that have a special place in the heart of every true child of God. We should thank God that He has inspired not one but four historians to record carefully the events concerning Christ's birth, ministry, death, and resurrection. Sometimes when people read, the account given in Matthew 28, which we considered two weeks ago, comparing it with an account like here in Luke, some of the details trouble them. Note that, uh, for example, Matthew highlights the one angel who is at the tomb, whereas Luke highlights two angels. And so... They look at the details like that, and and even that can trouble them. Why are there these different details? Well, for very good reason. None of the details are in conflict. If there were two angels, and there was surely one as well, who uh, is mentioned particularly by Matthew, and you can go through all of the different events recorded on that great resurrection morning, And if you carefully lay them up, you see that they are perfectly harmonious. And more to the point, every historian, every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they have carefully laid up those details which are profitable for our instruction, for the building up of our faith. Where one... Uh, makes one emphasis, the other makes another emphasis. where Where one omits a detail, the other includes a detail that is important for us to know. And for myself, as I was comparing the different accounts, it struck me that these words from the Lord Jesus that the physician Luke records for us here in Luke chapter 24 are particularly important for understanding not only the truth, but the meaning and significance of the resurrection of Christ for us. Behold my hands and my feet, it is I myself, handle me, and see, for a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as ye see me have. Verse 39. I wish to consider these words Behold my hands and my feet. Behold my hands and my feet. And I wish to investigate what it is the Lord Jesus is seeking to do where he speaks these words. The first thing I'll notice is he is giving correction. Giving correction. You see, there's three openings that take place in this chapter. Children... I'm sure you heard about that first opening, the opening of the tomb. Tombs aren't supposed to be opened after they're, they're closed, you see. A dead body goes inside, it is closed, and then that is to be left alone. And yet, here we have a tomb open through this miraculous work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. His tomb is opened. His tomb is empty. And those women have to be told, why do you seek the living from the dead? But there wasn't just that one opening. There was also the opening up of the Scriptures. Jesus appears, you see, uh, to some of his followers, these two travelers on the road, And they don't recognize him. He's cloaking his identity from them as they're traveling. And he sees that they are so sad, so downcast. And they ask, well, you know, don't you know all the things that have happened? This great prophet and teacher, Jesus, raised up by God, has been killed and betrayed by our leaders Everyone is talking about it. We thought he was the redeemer of Israel. And what is it that the Lord Jesus said to them? Well, he says there in verse 25, O fools and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? beginning at Moses and all the prophets he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself there's the opening up of the tomb and the opening up of the scriptures the thoughts of these disciples they are confused and so the word of god is brought to bear jesus though yet not recognized by them, begins to unfold to these two followers of his, how it is, and as it said in verse 23, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures concerning, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. You know, I think there is a great lesson there. Anyone who would seek to understand the scriptures Without that open tomb in the background, it's all going to be a cluster of confusion. All of these details, all of this history, all of these letters, all of these prophecies. What does it all amount to? What is it all about? Well, it's all about a person. It's all about a Savior. Everything was always about Jesus Christ from the book of Revelation all, way, all the way way. Sorry, from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And so there's the opening up of the scriptures. But even that is not the last opening, but the opening up of the understanding of these disciples. There in verse 31, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished out of their sight. After he he breaks the bread with these two travelers, having stopped with them along the way. And after he prays, suddenly in an instant, their eyes are open. Their understanding is clear. They see it is Jesus, and exactly at that moment, he vanishes from them. And so they make their way to the disciples, the, the apostles. And they uh, come and they share what has happened. And there on the very evening that all these things have happened late into the day by this point. Then Jesus is now standing in their midst. And he is going to uh, perform this very same opening as well. He is going to correct their faulty thinking. He is going to change their closed minds and open them up to receive his divine truth. Not only with those two travelers on the way, but in the flesh, he appears instantly in the presence of his closest companions, the eleven. And he says in verse 36, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, and supposed that they had seen a spirit, and he said unto them, "Why are ye troubled? Why do your thought do thoughts arise in your hearts? You see, it's not enough to know that there is an empty tomb that has been opened, not enough to simply have the scriptures opened." To you, it is necessary that Jesus Christ would open up your mind to receive him. I think perhaps it's only after we begin to receive something of the Lord's grace that we know what a terrible affront to God our thought life is. For the one who doesn't fear God, doesn't know God, has never grappled with the holiness and the greatness of God. Their thoughts come and go, and and they give no care to it. Is that a sinful thought? Is that a true thought? Is that a, a prideful thought? It's all the same. Whereas if we would ask ourselves this question, is God glorified with our thoughts, Are our thoughts in conformity with his truth? Then we have to recognize that we are so often like these disciples. Three long years they had been instructed. Three long years they had lived and ate and and slept alongside the Lord Jesus Christ as they were traveling. They had heard so much from him. And yet even now their thoughts go to this terrible place where they imagine that this is just a spirit, just a phantom before them. That is how out of touch they are with the truth of God. They will ascribe to this glorious appearing of their dear Savior and friend and Lord, even that of a phantom. And so the Lord corrects them with these words Behold my hands and feet. Behold my hands and feet. We need this correction as well, congregation. Indeed, there was a particular blessing to those disciples who could open their physical, their physical eyes and visibly behold their precious Savior. They could behold the very hands that had been pierced with nails. The very feet that had been fastened unto that accursed cross. They could behold the one who had been delivered over unto wicked hands of the leaders. They could behold this one who had been laid in the grave and now stood before them, the Son of God in his glorified humanity. But there is also this we must understand. It is recorded not only for them, but also for us. Jesus speaks to you today. Behold my hands and feet. With the eye of faith, observe this great history recorded here and preserved by the Holy Spirit. Cause your hearts and minds to fasten upon this great reality that whatever it is has happened to you this past week, whatever may happen to you in the week to come, Jesus Christ wants you to put that all out of mind and gaze upon this great reality that the, that the same Jesus that stood before those disciples is yet alive. He is yet risen. He is yet glorified. And the most important thing about your life or my life is not this or that detail. It is the fact that we live in a world in which the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. You know, Sometimes for a gospel minister, when they come up to preach a sermon, they feel so much inadequacy and even those mornings can be so difficult preparing that we are to open the scriptures themselves for the covenant congregation. And so often as, as I pray in those early mornings and, and pray for the congregation that they would receive the word. then one of the things that cheers my heart is that whatever else may happen, this is the Lord's day. This is the day where the Lord Jesus has risen from the grave. This is the day where the Lord Jesus stood before his disciples. This is the day where he said, behold, my hands and feet. It is all true. It is all accurate. It is all verifiable. It is all infallible and inerrant. And how terrible it is when we would be brought into the presence of such glorious truths as this. We would be brought into the presence by his word and spirit of the risen Christ himself, and yet doubts swirl in our minds. Surely that is one of the most terrible things a believer experiences, one of the things that that most gives them grief of heart where something in the Word of God is mingled with doubts, implanted by the devil, or the result of our own sinful pride or flesh, there is something in the Word of God, and the thought comes, is that really true? Is that really accurate? Can I take that truly as something to rest my soul upon? We must face the squarely congregation. Every doubt concerning the word of God is of the devil. Every doubt comes from either directly his hand of temptation or that which is laid up in our own sinful flesh. God has spoken. Christ has been revealed. Christ has risen And our duty is to believe. Believe all things that God has spoken. In every detail, in every respect, this is held forth for our salvation. That we believe in the risen Son of God. And so when we would speak to those who would question the word of God, we can indeed point to many historical evidences, many proofs that these things are so. We can point to these eyewitnesses that have come forward through all the annals of history. Note, for example, how the Apostle Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve. After that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present, but some are fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as of one born out of due times. References to hundreds of witnesses. Paul can write that in the first century without any fear whatsoever of being contradicted. All those people had seen him. People yet alive, though some having fallen asleep, could testify with their own eyeballs that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And within that first era of witnesses, you have all of them recorded in the scriptures and preserved for all time. Such things are historical facts and they are abundantly verified. And yet we ought to recognize that where these things are controverted by the unbelieving world, it comes not through a lack of facts. It doesn't come because there's a lack of information, but rather because they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Their prideful hearts hate. God, Their prideful hearts will not submit unto the wisdom of God in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we must take this to heart. We share this truth knowing that it takes the miracle of the Holy Spirit to truly subdue the mind and heart to receive this correction from the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would embrace it as their own. Well, Lord Jesus is clearly giving correction here, but we also recognize he is giving boldness, isn't he? He is giving boldness. Why are ye troubled and why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and feet, that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have. So he's saying it's preposterous that a spirit could be before you. Look, I have flesh and bones. I have a physical body. I am the very Jesus whom you knew before my death and resurrection. It is impossible that I am a spirit. And this and this is revealed in order that their fears and their doubts would be demolished. And they will be given a special boldness. That they would be bold in their faith. You know, it's interesting. Those words, it is I myself. It is I myself. Those very same words in the Greek appear over and over in The gospel writers, ego, I, me, I am. And it's often connected with uh, attestations of his deity. You remember there was that occasion there in John chapter 8, when he was especially explaining the fact that he is the son of God unto those religious leaders. And he said, before Abraham was... I am, ego, I, me. It's the same uh, construct that is used, for example, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the divine name Jehovah is used. I am that I am. And so he says here, it is I myself, ego, I, me. And it's used... uh, In those occasions where especially Jesus wanted to assure the disciples of his special protection and presence when they were plagued with doubts and worries. Think of Matthew chapter 14. There is Jesus. He sent them out alone on the boat. He stayed behind, and so they are there on the boat, and it's dark, and it's at night, and the wind and the waves are crashing against the boat. And as they are being tossed to and fro, there Jesus comes walking on the sea. And it says in Matthew 14, verse 26, And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out with fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I, ego I mean, be not afraid. Isn't it striking how often we fall into the very same trouble? There we are, we we think that uh, everything is lost, we think that everything is, is never going to be okay again, and then the Lord Jesus, in his condescension, he reaches down, he stoops down, And he lifts up our spirits. He gives us a fresh measure of his grace. That sight of his presence and of his glory. And our faith, it builds up. And we would think we would learn. But then immediately we're hit by the very same temptation or trial or something similar. And we're back to the same fearful, despondent, sad spirit. And Jesus doesn't get impatient with his troubled, stiff-necked, doubting people. No, instead he again and again approaches unto them with his tenderness and says, It is I. I am. He is always the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Always there to approach us in our fears and doubts. And to say that there is hope, there is assurance, there is boldness for the one who comes unto me. Behold my hands and feet, it is I. Jesus Christ says that also today. Maybe you remember last week we read about... How when that law of God was revealed on Mount Sinai, Moses recalls how the whole mountain was in flame and the people trembled and said that they could not even bear to hear the voice coming down from that mountain. We would rightly understand the majesty and the greatness of God. How is any of us could have boldness to approach unto him? He is God, and we are not. He is holy, we are sinful. He is pure, and we are defiled. How could we have boldness before such a God if he did not stoop down? If the Son of God himself had not humbled himself, taken the form of a servant, made unto the likeness of men, humbled himself all the way to the cross, and spoke with such tender words, Behold my hands and feet, it is I. No spirit, no phantom, no delusion. The Lord Jesus himself approaches unto sinners and says that you may be bold to receive of this great salvation. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 18 Now, where remission of these is, that is, remission of sins, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil that is to say his flesh not the old way of the law, not the old way of the covenant of works, the new and the living way of the gospel. There was no possible way of access unto God apart from Jesus Christ. If Jesus Christ had not come and died and risen from the dead, if his gospel had not been preached unto you and me, there would be no way of knowing God, no way of escaping hell, no way of escaping the judgment and wrath of God and the curse of the law. But there is a way, praise be to God, there is a way, a new and living way that we may boldly approach unto and that is the lord jesus christ himself a person has become the way the truth and the life no man comes to the father but by him we come to the lord jesus in obedience to his words behold my hands and feet behold me there is access unto god through me and so fears and doubts they are to be put aside you notice how it goes on in verse forty, and when he had thus spoken he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they had while they yet believed not for and while they yet believed not for joy, and wondered, he said unto them, Have ye here any meat? And they gave him a piece of a broiled fish, and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. So If you track with what's going on there, basically, even after he has said these words, even after he has shown them his hands and feet, they won't fully believe in it. And why not? Because of joy. It seems too good to be true. How could their blessed Savior truly be in their presence? And yet the Lord Jesus Patiently deals with them even more by eating that fish and eating that honeycomb to further de- uh, prove beyond any question that he is the very same man, the very same God man whom they had previously known. And for myself, as I was reflecting on that, I thought, isn't it just so comforting knowing that this is a true. Jesus, a true God-man whom we may come unto, that he is no phantom. Yes, he is glorified beyond what we can imagine in his glorified humanity. And yet he is the very same Jesus who did not count himself too great even to eat with sinful men like these, to eat these fish, to eat this honeycomb. For me, it tells me that the Jesus whom we look for to return on the clouds in judgment is this very same Jesus of Nazareth with a physical body, a physical stomach, who can eat food. The very same Jesus whom we look to to raise up our own bodies, take such care to raise his own and to display it before us. These things, congregation, Are to give us hope They are to give us boldness They are to give us courage We look ahead unto the future And we know that these outward bodies They are perishing away Even as the inward man is being renewed day by day And so it can be a fearful thing To be separated from these natural bodies Which God has given unto us and so it seems as though it is a mysterious and a, and a terrible thing to enter into that, that future state, as we've said recently. But consider this, it is only a way station unto that greater resurrection morning when body and soul is restored. Where we see, as 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, that the Lord Jesus is receiving his natural full body, yet with these glorified powers so also we will have bodies like unto his glorified body. The very flesh and bones that we now have, they are not going to waste away to nothing finally and ultimately no, but to be restored into the new heavens and the new earth. This is the assurance of the people of God. This is the boldness of the true Christian that we will be raised with him. When we see him as he is. Let that give us courage congregation. Let us fix our minds not on the things below. But on heavenly things where Jesus Christ the risen savior sits at the right hand of God. Let us fix our eyes upon the true tangible Jesus Christ who may be touched and felt. Though we are yet separated from him in the body, let us be united with him in our hearts. So that when we are united with him in our bodies, it is an acquaintance and a a joy that we long for. So we see that he is giving correction, but also giving boldness. I wish to emphasize this last thing. He is giving blessing. He is giving blessing. Those hands, they still have the marks of the crucifixion. Now, why would that possibly be? Why could that be? Well, children, maybe it isn't surprising to you that Jesus, having had those great big nails pierced through his hands when he was nailed to the cross as our sin bearer, Maybe it isn't surprising to you that there are still those great big holes. But if you think about it, now that Jesus has entered into his glory, all of his suffering is past. He has no more pain. And as his body was once dead and now is alive, you see that there was no need for him to still have wounds in his body. Jesus didn't need to have wounds in his hands to show to his disciples. But it was done for our benefit. So that we would see what it was that he had done and have that visible, tangible reminder. And it's those very same hands which when he was ascending up, going up unto his father, he lifted up those hands and he blessed the people. That's what it says in verse 50. He, helped, he led them out as far as Bethany. He lifted up his hands and blessed them. You see, the blessings with the, the lifting up of hands, it's an act of a priest. A priest, you know, the priest in the Old Covenant, as we read in Numbers chapter 6, they would raise up their hands and they would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious unto you, and so forth. So the Lord Jesus now takes on that role of the priest. Why? Because the hands that bless are the very hands that were cursed of God for our sakes. Jesus Christ endured it all, all the penalty of hell in the place of his people, that he may bless those who would receive his gospel. And many have questioned, is this wound in Jesus' hands and feet, Is is it still the case today that he has these wounds? Some people may say, Well, there's something imperfect about Christ's glorification if he should have these wounds. And so many theologians have said, surely this was just a temporary thing. And after he's ascended into heaven, his hands and his feet were then made whole. And yet I read in the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, he has that great vision of the heavenly throne room. And there's the book that is to be opened with these seals that is going to unleash all the forces of history and of judgment. And it says in Revelation 5, verse 3, And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And then verse 5, And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right of hand of him that sat upon the throne. Well, much spiritual and symbolic imagery there, but the, yes, the thing I'd like you to notice is that when John beholds the risen and glorified Christ, it is a lamb as if it had been slain. And many have taken that to mean that Jesus, even in his glorified state, he bears the marks of his crucifixion and death. And I put to you that uh, while we shouldn't be dogmatic about it, perhaps perhaps those marks are not there, maybe they are. I put to you that there is certainly this to be considered. If the Lord Jesus has seen fit that those marks remain for eternity, they would in no way way detract from his glorification because they are badges of his love, his love for his own. And so you think about this example, you have, uh, you have a soldier and he has gone through war and he has a great big battle scar on his chest as he endured affliction on the battlefront in war for his country. When he would look on that battlefront, on that war wound that he endured in battle, he's not going to look upon it just as something that is marring his flesh, as something to be ashamed of. But it's going to remind him of the one that he loved. His home, his country, his family. So is it with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it is that today as well. If we would receive blessing from the Lord Jesus Christ, let us... Look at those hands with which he blesses us. Behold my hands and feet. Let us feast our souls upon this dear one. The Lord Jesus Christ has a heart of love for sinners like you and I. He died on the cross for our salvation and justification. Trust in him with your heart. He is a good savior. He is one Who has endured all things for the salvation of those such as yourself. Do not doubt, but believe.